Okay, this is Professor Tofano, and I will be talking about Chapter 6, Nonverbal Communication. And uh, this will be in the textbook Interplay uh, by Adler. This is the 13th edition, and I will be talking, I will be starting this uh, conversation on page 185. So this is the second part um, of the chapter. So I don't think there'll be three parts. I think it's just two parts. Okay, we'll see how this goes. But uh, we'll start under the heading of managing impressions. So to understand how we use nonverbal communication um, and how nonverbal communication uh, functions. And so we talked about creating and maintaining relationships, regulating interactions. Uh, we talked about influencing others, concealing and deceiving. And then we're going to talk about managing impressions. Um, it says here, previously, we talked about Chapter 3. If some of you remember Chapter 3. Chapter 3 wasn't that long ago. Interpersonal communication and self. So uh, there, we explained that one major goal of communicating is impression management, meaning getting others to view us as the way we want to be seen. So in many cases, nonverbal cues can be uh, more important than even verbal messages when creating impressions. You know, there's an old saying, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And oftentimes, that first impression, at least initially, has to do with uh, how we uh, manage our impressions and, and or how other people interpret uh, those impressions or that perception that those impressions create. To appreciate how we manage impressions via nonverbal means, consider what, what happens when you meet strangers you would like to know, uh, strangers that you would like to know better. Instead of projecting your image, hi, I'm attractive and friendly and easygoing, you don't have to say that, you just present that through your identity. So you may dress fashion fashionably, smile a lot, or perhaps strike a relaxed pose. So it says here there are several ways of managing impressions non-verbally. And here they are. Manner is one, appearance is another, and setting is another. So manner refers to the way we act, how we deliberately stand and move, the way we control our facial expressions and the adjustments we make in our voice. Secondly, appearance. Appearance involves the way we dress, the artifacts we wear, hair, makeup, hair, makeup, scent, and so on. Setting involves the physical items we surround ourselves with, personal items, vehicles, and even the place we live. Kind of interesting. It says here uh, there is a psychologist that ran studies to see if small differences in setting could influence attraction. A male research confederate was asked to approach a local woman at a shopping center and ask for her phone number. When he made this request while holding a guitar, he was successful far more times than he was carrying nothing or even a sports bag. In another study, another researcher had female research confederates lie face down on the beach reading a book. Some had a temporary tattoo of a butterfly on their lower backs, and some did not. Those bearing tattoos were approached by men for conversations more often and more quickly than when they did not have tattoos. So what do those two 
uh, examples of studies uh, prove. So this idea of small differences in setting can influence attraction. So for women, at least in this case, uh, the, the male human carrying a guitar uh, made that in male individual more attractive than if that male had nothing or a sports bag. And in the case of uh, women having tattoos on the lower parts of their back, uh, apparently uh, women with tattoos on their back area, wherever that specific location would be, we'll just leave it there, uh, men uh, then approach them for more conversations. So of course then the question is, what is it about the guitar for women that makes the person more, I'll just say, interesting? And what is it about tattoos in a particular place on a woman's body that makes that uh, more interesting to the man? So does the guitar then um, mean something uh, to, the, in this case, the female individuals? So there's something about women and guys with guitars. So are they better people? Are they better prospects? Are they more interesting? Maybe they're more uh, artistic and maybe artistic. The artistic value is important. And then for the men, um, do women with tattoos, is there something that they offer men or men perceive that the women would offer them that creates a greater value than if the woman did not have a tattoo in that particular area of their uh, body. And then um, does that mean that the individuals uh, have a greater incentive or motivation to then engage in communication and then engage in relationship building and then um, engage in um, greater intimacy? It's really good questions. So you, got, you all can process them. So if uh, women listening want to text me or email me and let me know what it is about the man with the guitar, and if men want to uh, let me know about what the advantage is with the tattoo. Um, okay, don't, don't let me know that. Okay, um, I'm going to move on. I'm on page 186. and uh, types of nonverbal communication, body movement, and that includes uh, um, face and eyes, posture, gestures, touch, voice, distance, um, territoriality, uh, time, uh, physical attractiveness, clothing, and the physical environment. All right, so we'll talk a little bit about each one of those areas if we can. Okay, so types of nonverbal communication, body movement. Uh, social scientists use the term kinzenetics to describe the study of how people communicate through body movements and uh, you have face and eyes are probably the most notice noticeable part of a body. And however, the nonverbal messages that they send are not always easy to read. The face is tremendously complicated, a complicated channel of expression to interpret for several reasons. First, 
It's hard to describe the number or kinds of expressions commonly produced by the face and eyes. For example, researchers have found that there are eight distinguishable positions of the eyebrows and the forehead, eight more for the eyes and the lids, eyelids, and ten for the lower face. Um, a researcher named Ekman, E-K-M-A-N, has studied this, and uh, he's done some really good work in microexpressions. Um, if you want to know more about microexpressions, uh, Google Ekman, E-K-M-A-N. He's got a, I don't, off the top of my head, I don't have it in front of me the name of the book, but just Google him. But he's got a great book on microexpressions. Uh, the significance of face and interpersonal com communication could be seen in many phrases that we allude to. We talk about saving face, needing some face time, maintaining a poker face, facing our fears. Um, that's because, um, according to the researchers, the face may well be the primary so source of communication, excuse me, communicative information next to the human speech. The face may well be the primary source of communicative information next to human speech. The next component of facial expression is eye behavior. And that study is known as oculesics. And they talk about gazes and glances. Gazes and glances are usually signals of the looker's interest. Gaze, gazes and glances are usually signals of a looker's interest. Gazing also is a good indicator of liking. Sometimes eye contact reflects liking that already, already exists, and at other times it creates uh, or increases liking, um, hence the expression making eyes at a person is something that's used. Therapists who maintain eye contact combined with leaning forward are more perceived as more empathetic and credible. In other situations, eye contact indicates interest but not attraction or approval, such as when a teacher glares at a rowdy student or a police officer keeps an eye on a suspect. Posture. To appreciate the communicative value of body language, stop reading for a moment and notice how you're sitting. What does your position say non-verbally about how you feel? Are there other people near you now? What messages do you get from this present posture? The English language indicates the deep links between posture and communication. English is full of expressions that link ties to emotional states with body posture. For instance, I won't take this lying down. Stand on your own two feet. Take a load off your back. Don't be so uptight. Phrases such as these show an awareness of posture even if it's unconscious. Some body language can be dramatic. Research shows that expansive poses, hands on hips, feet propped up on a desk, a hawk-like stance, are all signs of power and status. Power and status. Next, gestures. Gestures are, are a fundamental element of communication, so fundamental that in fact the people who have been blind, people who have been blind from birth use them. Gestures are sometimes intentional. For example, a cheery wave or a thumbs up. In other cases, however, our gestures are unconscious. Occasionally, an unconscious gesture will consist of an unambiguous emblem, such as a shrug that clearly means I don't know. Social scientists call these behaviors manipulators. Social rules may discourage us from performing many manipulations in public, but people still use them without ever noticing. Next, we have touch. Social scientists use the term haptics to distinguish the study of touching. Research confirms the value of touching for infants. This involves mothers holding, oh, okay. In particular, studies show the value of kangaroo care kangaroo care for premature babies. 
This involves mothers holding their underdeveloped infants close to their skin for one hour a day over two weeks. Compared with babies kept exclusively in incubators, these infants had a stronger physiological and cognitive development, slept better, and had lower stress levels. Interesting. Touch also plays a large part in how we respond to others. For instance, researchers conducted an experiment in which Confederates asked passers-by to look after a large and very excited dog for 10 minutes so the owner could run into the pharmacy where animals were prohibited. In half the studies, the passerbys were touched during the request. Results confirming that touch had large effect on compliance. When touched, 55% of the people agreed, whereas only 35% agreed with a no touch. An additional power of touch is, on, uh, is the on-job utility. Studies show that even fleeting touches on the hand or farm can result in larger tips for servers, for waitresses and waiters. Hmm. And a server who touches a patron's arm while suggesting a meal choice increases the probability of that patron making that choice. The effects to alcohol consumption as well. Both men and women in taverns, whether in same-sex or different-sex diets, increase their alcohol consumption when touched by the waiter or waitress. Kind of interesting. So for those of you that are waiters or waitresses, then if you touch, and again, in parentheses is appropriate, and appropriate is contextual, but it has to be in, uh, in an obvious non-sexual way, an obvious non-sexual way, um, but it is contextual how touch works. But apparently, and I think I concur with those studies just from personal um, experience and also just observing many, many interactions with uh, people in the business, uh, restaurant business. Next, we move on to voice. Social scientists use the term paralanguage to describe the way a message is spoken. Vocal rate, pronunciation, pitch, tone, volume, and emphasis can give words or words, the word, same word or words, many meaning, meanings. For example, note how many meanings come from a single sentence just by shifting the emphasis. And here is one, two, three, four, uh, examples of one sentence. This is a fantastic inter interpersonal book. This is a fantastic interpersonal communication book. This is a fantastic interpersonal communication book. This is a fantastic interpersonal communication book. And this is a fantastic interpersonal communication book. Huh. You could see in my emphasize how, depending upon which word was emphasized, uh, it could create a different meaning. Sarcasm is one approach in which we use emphasis, tone of voice, and length of utterance to change a statement's meaning to the opposite of its verbal message. Experience this reversal yourself with the following three statements. Say them literally and then say them sarcastically. You look terrific. You look terrific. I really had a wonderful time on that blind date. I really had a wonderful time on that blind date. There's nothing I like better than calves' brains on toast. There's nothing I like better than calves' brains on toast. As with other nonverbal messages, people often ignore and misinterpret vocal nuances of sarcasm. Members of certain groups, children, people with weak intellectual skills, poor listeners, people who have communicative apprehension, and people with certain forms of brain damage are more likely to misunderstand sarcastic messages than others. Sarcasm is really contextual, and um, when the uh, communicators know each other and have some prior experience with uh, relational experience, 
sarcasm uh, may be an effective form of communication, but sometimes it's used inappropriately and will be interpreted as mean and hidden anger and uh, will not create any benefit uh, for the communicators. Moving on, distance. Proxemics is the study of how communication is affected by the use or organization and perception of space and distance. Each of us carries around a sort of invisible bubble of personal space wherever we go. We think of the area inside this bubble as, as, our, of our, as our own, almost as much as part of our own bodies. Our personal bubbles vary in size according to the culture in which we're raised, the person we're with, and the situation. And so um, the author of this textbook talks about a researcher by the name of Hall, and Edward Hall created this proxemics chart, and he talks about these, uh, these levels of distance, and one is personal space. We have um, social space or social distancing and public distancing. So intimate distance, personal distance, social distance, and public distance. Those are the four ones, the four areas. Intimate, that's um, with people who are emotionally close to us, we allow them into those areas that is usually from our body, touching our body to 18 inches away. The people that we hug, the people that we let get close for hugs, smooches, kisses, face rubbings, those, that would be uh, the intimate distance, and that is reserved exclusively for a very uh, small group of people generally. So uh, those are the people that we trust, and so we demonstrate that trust by allowing them to get close to us. The second zone is personal. That ranges from 18 out to 4 feet, and that's probably where most people, we interact with most people. So that is kind of arm's length, the, the, the idea, the metaphor of keeping someone at arm's length. It's also emotionally safe and physically safe. If someone wants to smack you in the face, they're going to have to be you know, in that intimate distance. So if you keep them at arm's length or a personal distance, they can't, they can't hurt you physically. And emotionally, it's safer to keep them at that personal distance. Third, we have social distance. That's from 4 feet to 12 feet. And it says that uh, students are more satisfied with teachers who reduce, at appropriate levels, of course, the distance between themselves and the classes. They also are more satisfied with the course itself and more likely to follow the teacher's instructions. So um, social distance for students uh, not being um, in um, having the teacher instruct in person um, within this area uh, about 4 feet to 12 feet is uh, satisfying for students. And then public distance is the furthest zone. That's um, anywhere from 12 feet out. And talks about maybe up to 25 feet. Um, so it makes it really hard to communicate with people that are 25 feet or more away. So if you're trying to communicate with someone, you may have to yell or raise your voice, and, and that is uncomfortable. When our spatial bubble is invaded, we experience stress and we respond with barrier behaviors, strategies designed to create a barrier, barrier between ourselves and others. Invade someone's personal space and notice the reaction. At first, the person is more likely to back away, probably 
Well, without realizing what's happening, next your partner might attempt to put an object between you, such as a desk, a chair, or some books. Then the other person will probably decrease their eye contact. Furthermore, your reluctant partner might sneeze, cough, scratch, or exhibit any varieties of ways to discourage uh, any antisocial behavior. In the end, if none of these behaviors achieve the desired goal, the desired goal of getting space between the two, the other person may just leave, or gently, gently counterattack. So some of you uh, have run into close talkers. Uh, the TV show Seinfeld um, has a couple of episodes, just kind of an ongoing running um, um, theme about close talkers. And so you may look at that, but um, how close is too close, how far away is too far, and what seems comfortable, and then how do you make adjustments when someone's either too far away or too close do you do it consciously, subconsciously? Do you do it practically? Those kind of things. But all of us have a comfort zone. And um, some people are okay with people close and other people far away. They feel better. Okay, uh, moving on. Territoriality. So this has to do with territory and how we um, decide to own certain, certain physical space. It says here, Whereas personal space is the invisible bubble we carry, the area that serves as an extension of our physical being is called territory. That remains stationary. Um, Summers, a researcher, watched students in a college library and found that there is a definite pattern for people who want to study alone. Although the library was uncrowded, students almost always chose seats at, the, at one of the empty tables. After each table was occupied by a reader, new readers would choose a seat on the opposite side at the far end thus minimizing, excuse me, thus maximizing the distance between themselves and others. One of uh, the uh, researchers tried violating these unspoken rules by sitting next to or across the way from female readers who were more distant, when more distant seats were available. She found that, that uh, the approached women reacted defensively, signaling their discomfort through their shifts in posture, gesturing or moving away. Consider how you would react if someone took your seat in one of your classes. Even though the chair isn't your possession, you probably have a sense of ownership about it. And of course, as a teacher for 25 years, I've noticed this myself, that, that uh, after the first couple of classes, students have a predictable pattern of where they'll seat, where they'll sit, and they just feel more comfortable sitting in the same seat in the same classroom and having the same arrangement of uh, students and uh, uh, physical surroundings. And I have a couple of times over the years uh, not that many, but I've actually had students tell me, uh, Professor, someone's in my seat, can you ask them to move? And so um, those are a, a bit awkward, but I've had those happen over the time. So we, we do kind of claim our area even within the classrooms, which is interesting. We just feel more comfortable with that being in that same place uh, provides some comfort for us. Moving on to time, social scientists use the terms chronemics to describe the study of how humans use structure and time our use of time can express both intentional and unintentional messages. It can describe several ways, oh, social scientists describe several ways that time can be used to communicate. Consider how natural it is for a boss to drop into an employee's office space unannounced, whereas the employee would never in intrude in a similar fashion without an appointment. Similarly, 
it would be a serious mistake to show up late for a job interview, although the interviewer may, all, may keep you waiting and that would be acceptable. We talk about time as having a value or worth, questions like what is your time worth? Um, and then um, even in the business realm, um, what do lawyers charge for their time? What do psychologists charge for their time? When you go shopping in a customer service environment, how long will you wait your turn to be served? So we have a sense that our time is valuable and although depending upon the context uh, that we may assign different values to time, uh, we all have a sense that um, I'm in a hurry, I have little time, I have plenty of time, and so depending upon uh, some of those particulars and those variables, we, be, we may have placed a greater value on our time. But uh, time is something that we do value, value for sure. Our life is limited in time. We have 168 hours a week, and in that week we have to sleep between 4 and 8 or 10 hours. And so you could take 168, and then you could take another um, uh, 64 hours there, and uh, you see you have about 100 hours or so of awake time every single week, 52 weeks a year, and then you can extrapolate based upon the length of time you plan to live, and then you could have figure out how much time you have. Years ago, I bought a uh, clock that um, counted backwards uh, from the time that you are currently in until the time that you die. And what they did was you, you um, entered some variables like your age, your weight, just some other basic variables about you as a person and then they used um, government data regarding uh, mortality, morbidi morbidity and mortality rates and those kind of things and figured, okay, if you're an average man, you get like 80 years. And so if you're 50, you got 30 years left and 30 years, uh, they'll give you a time and they put that time on the clock and then it counted down. So some people thought it was uh, morbid and I actually thought, and I still think as I tell the story, that it, I think it's a valuable uh, reminder and indicator that um, all of us have an end date and all of us have uh, currently have a limited amount of time to accomplish uh, the things that we want to and also to establish and maintain uh, relationships with other people. So if you want to look into that, uh, let me know if you find um, that clock. I'm sure it's out there somewhere. So time, also known as chronemics. All right, moving on to physical attractiveness. The importance of beauty has been emphasized in the arts for centuries. More recently, social scientists measured the degree to which physical attractiveness affects interaction between people, men and women, whom others view as attractive, are rated as being more sensitive, kind, strong, sociable, interesting, and uh, the inverse is true. People that were interpreted uh, as less attractive they assigned negative personal attributes to them. Fortunately, attractiveness is something we can control without having to call plastic surgeons. If you aren't totally gorgeous or handsome, don't despair. Evidence suggests that as we get, the more that we get to know people and like them, we start to regard them as better looking. Moreover, we view others as beautiful or ugly not on the basis of their original equipment, but also on how they use that equipment. Postures, gestures, facial expressions, and other behaviors can increase attraction of an otherwise unremarkable person. Finally, the way we dress can make a significant difference in the way that we're perceived. So we have clothing, 
which is next on this list. Besides protecting us from the elements, clothing is a means of nonverbal communication. It's a way for some to strategically hide problem areas and to accentuate assets. Uh, one writer suggested uh, ten, uh, way, 10 types of messages that we communicate through clothing, economic level, education level, trustworthiness, social position, level of sophistication, economic background, social background, educational background, level of success, and moral character. We do make assumptions about people based on the style of clothing. For example, the way people are dressed affects judgments of their credi credibility. And in my speech class, I do require students to, quote, dress up, because it is true, especially in a public speaking environment, that oftentimes uh, listeners or audience members will um, judge speakers uh, based upon, at least initially, the way that they, uh, their appearance, based on their appearance, whether it's fair or not, that's just true. For example, the way that people are dressed affects judgments of their credibility. In one experiment, a man and a woman were stationed in the hallway so that anyone who wished to go by to or to avoid them were passed by them. In one condition, the conversationalists wore formal daytime dress and the other wore casual attire. Passers-by's behave differently towards the couple depending upon their style of clothing. They responded positively to the well-dressed couple and showed more annoyance when the people were casually dressed. And then lastly, physical environment. It says, we conclude our look at nonverbal communication by examining how physical setting, architecture, and interior design affect communication. Research confirms that an environment can shape a kind of interaction that takes place, for example, in a study of 10 neighborhoods in Portland, they examined sidewalks, presence of front porches, traffic calming devices, bars on the window, and presence of litter or graffiti. Levels of, of neighborliness among the residents increased as the number of positive physical environmental characteristics increased. Inner city, um, um, inner city, um, inner city, Inner city, um, where was I? I lost my place. Oh, inner city adults and children who have access to landscape public spaces um, interact in ways that are much more pro-social than do those who, ha who have to interact in more barren environments. On the other hand, public housing residents living in a rel rel relatively barren, built barren buildings reported more mental fatigue, aggression, and violence than did their counterparts in buildings with nearby grass and trees. It is interesting. Students see professors who occupy, occupy well-decorated offices as being more credible than those occupy, occupying less attractive work areas. Physicians have shaped environments to improve the quality of interaction with their patients by using the same, um, same approaches. Um, According to environmental psychologist Robert Summers, simply removing a doctor's desk made patients feel five times more at ease during a doctor's visit. Summer also found that redesigning a convalescent ward of a hospital greatly increased the interaction between the patients. It's kind of interesting how just rearranging the physical environment uh, changes the way that um, the way that the interaction is interpreted. Kind of interesting. Okay, that's uh, on page 199. That's the end of the second half of chapter 6, nonverbal communication. Please take a look at the check your understanding and the key terms here. Uh, there's a lot here. If you heard anything that you want to dig deeper on, uh, please uh, do. And um, 
uh, nonverbal communication is um, certainly uh, worth your um, worth your time to kind of research it more. Okay, this is Professor Tafano out.